everyone. Hey, hey. Hello. Ah, uh, there he is. Our most vibrant and enthusiastic podcaster, Polly. Welcome back. Hi, everyone. Season two, the most anticipated comeback of 2021. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> it's been a while, but you know, good things take time. So yeah, now we're back. Oh, why don't we ask a weird question, by the way, in TikTok? <laughs> its tone was undecipherable, but essentially it was asking... Who, Who are, are you? <laughs> Who are you? So for any new listeners here, welcome. Thanks for giving us a try. We are three friends. Nikki. Polly. No. <laughs> That's funny. Isan. <laughs> uh, and I guess that leads us to say that we drink and podcast. <laughs> so basically what we do is we get a drink, a cocktail each week, something new, and talk about a different heritage history culture politics anything kind of topic yeah and the one we're drinking today is quite representative of the topic we're gonna be speaking about very balkan mm-hmm. yep we were inspired by mediterranean latin love affair.com <laughs> thank you and sonia sarate <laughs> thank uh, you sonia thanks so we're drinking pomegranate lemon raki cocktail basically raki is the main ingredient or Rakia or Rakia, as they call it in different countries. Basically, this is a, like a grappa type of a drink, like a brandy. It can be made from whatever thing you can imagine. Plums, grapes, peaches, pears, everything. How would you describe the taste? Lovely and <laughs> very Balkan. Very Balkan. Is that? Uh, poison, slash petrol, <laughs> like... Honestly, undrinkable. But the cocktail isn't bad. <laughs> thankfully, there are strong flavors to mask the taste. Yeah, yeah. Um, thankfully, we've got some yeah strong elements to uh, blend nicely with the rakia. Yeah. I mean, I I had a bad experience with raki when I was young, anyway. And um, so th- I mean that that kind of clouds my judgment. That makes me quite prejudiced against it. But that was Greek raki, and and Poddy has said before that. You know, maybe Bulgarian is better, but controversial. It is, it is, it is. Because <laughs> um, it can be made with different things. But no, I was on holiday uh, with my mum and auntie uh, on the island of Skiathos. And I was about about five. And, um, you know, we, we were... My mum is very bohemian. She befriended the locals. They were playing card games or something. And on the table, I saw there were these little cups. And I was little. So I was like, oh, it's a little cup for little me. Like, makes total sense. I bet there's like lemonade or Sprite in there or something. So I took one and I took a big gulp. And it was not lemonade or Sprite. I'm telling you right now. Yeah, it was horrific. And I tried to claw my own tongue out. (laughs) That is traumatic. (laughs) Oh my God, you poor thing. Yeah lifelong trauma so so that's kind of made me you know less enthusiastic about yeah fair enough the beverage but I'm, I'm giving it another go i'm an adult now i can face my fears <laughs> hey nikki you with your greek heritage did you were you exposed to raki in yeah, australia of course we had some homemade yeah? bottle like in the liquor cabinet which when i was not old enough to drink and was reading <laughs> that every weekend i finally got to that bottle because all the good stuff had run out and yeah i was in for the shock of my life <laughs> yeah. 
speaking about bottles like as my dad makes his own raki and he usually as a classical balkan guy he puts it in a plastic water bottle <laughs> so it's very weird when you are a kid and open the fridge and you want to drink a cold water and you grab a water oh. bottle and in fact you have raki there yeah. <laughs> which is with yeah, 45 degrees so alcohol <laughs> But, but you're yeah. like conditioned to like it from a young age, right? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. When you go to Christmas and Easter, you always, as a child, it doesn't matter whether you're five, six, seven, they push you to, to have a sip of Raki. My mom, for example, she has her Raki set with glasses. Mm. Um, yeah, it's it's a thing. It's a real thing. Like, yeah. a spe- like specific glasses? Specific glasses, oh. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think I have a big shelf at home yeah. in Melbourne with a variety of Raki slash... Drinking glasses, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. Well, yeah, anyway, that's what we're drinking today. So in our cocktail today, we have a few different ingredients and flavors that mask this horrific taste. Um, lemonade. Yeah. Mint. Lemonade. Or lemon, lime. Sprite. Fanciness. <laughs> yeah, and pomegranate juice, which I think is what's making it really nice. Like it has a really sweet and smooth flavor, but... Mm-hmm. Content warning, if you're going to go out and make this, the pomegranate juice is really expensive. It's yeah. like... 10 euros. Yeah, and the orakio is like literally 3 euros. So, um... <laughs> Hashtag <yeah>. Greece. Uh, <laughs> it's a pricey drink. Hello again, guys. Today's episode has an interesting background. Basically, Nikki and Isan were invited to a conference in Sarajevo. And as you know, Nikki comes from Australia, so basically another continent. Isan is from a country that literally left the EU one year ago. And they had to go to a conference in Sarajevo, which was basically about the integration of Western Balkan countries in the EU. This topic is quite difficult and interesting, but also Bosnia and Sarajevo's location is quite peculiar and quite controversial. So it was actually a really good kind of workshop experience that we got to participate in which I'm really grateful that we actually went and did that because it was just such an eye-opener because mm-hmm. we we got to mingle with people from across Europe both in and out of the EU yeah it was so interesting the whole experience so interesting like yeah just being exposed to firstly eu politics but then also from the perspective of countries that are in the eu and then those who are out of the eu and yeah Izan and i both come from countries that aren't in the eu (laughs) no longer (laughs) um so yeah that was another reason why i particularly wanted to to attend because i just thought it would be really interesting to hear perspectives from countries who are trying who are actively like applying to enter the eu at the moment as well as those who are already in it as to how effective they see it is um in the wake of covid all of that kind of thing because we had participants from italy and italy was obviously particularly quite badly hit with covid so so yeah, it was really interesting to kind of hear their perspectives and do a bit of debating, yeah, do a bit of research. It was really nice, really fun. Everyone was so lovely. Such a pleasure to meet everyone. And to be honest, this was not an episode that we didn't plan doing. No. In this season, yeah, everything was last minute, but... Yeah, so basically any like spare moment Izan and I had, we were at museums and cultural sites just learning about Bosnia's history. And in particular, it's more recent history with its involvement in the breakup of Yugoslavia and the Bosnian War. And yet there was just 
too much that we saw that we couldn't not have an episode on it. Yeah. But yeah, before that, we have to give background of how did basically Bosnia came to be and Yugoslavia, one of the most progressive socialist countries in 20th century. So a bit more like fun topic. Yeah, I guess yeah. so. Izam, want to take that one? Yeah, well, I think the thing that makes Bosnia so fascinating is its diversity in terms of ethnic, Um, populations in terms of religions in terms of the culture there is so diverse and the reason for that is because of where it is geographically and also where it's been kind of politically over the last thousand years (laughs) Um, so I'll give you a little bit of context around that Um, I won't go you know into too much detail but just so you kind of understand a little bit about why Bosnia is the way it is so basically it started with the Romans as so many things do where the Roman Empire kind of took over the Balkan Peninsula and Christianized it but also then following on from that in the sixth to seventh centuries CE um, the Slavic people entered the region. And then as the Byzantine Empire kind of took over the region, it was very orthodox. And then there was uh, that real east-west divide of the two parts of the Roman Empire where after the Great Schism, I can never say that word, <laughs> um, the Western Empire was Catholic-based and then the Eastern was Orthodox. And that happened kind of directly along the lines of what later became Yugoslavia. Croatia in particular was like the border of that. So the Croatian-Bosnian-Serbian border became the east-west divide so croatia was a catholic country whereas the other countries on the other side of that were orthodox and then along came the ottomans because of course the ottomans so um there was a great battle of kosovo which was very important uh kind of to the cultural identity of the serbs which happened in 1389 uh where there was kind of a a big standoff between the serbian prince and the oncoming ottoman army and both sides killed each other but in the end the ottomans won out and so he was seen as kind of a great martyr and someone to look to uh, in defense against the coming kind of muslim faith Fast forward a few years, the Ottomans are at war with the Habsburgs and they try to expand further north. But when they get to Vienna, they are too ambitious and the Austrians push them back. And so that kind of starts a big standoff between the Habsburg Empire and the Ottoman Empire, which goes kind of wrong for the Ottomans because they get pushed further and further back. Uh, And so the Austrians then reclaim Hungary, Croatia and create the modern border of the Croatia-Bosnian divide between what was Ottoman and what was part of the Habsburg Empire. So with the Ottomans losing power and countries gaining independence through the 1800s, such as Greece, Bulgaria, there were many calls from many different nations at that time for their own independence from the kind of failing empire. Uh, There were called for reforms to the system for the Balkan countries. And at that time, it was kind of based on a millet system. So the millet system based your entire social status on your faith. And that was kind of where 
those real divides came from going forward. So although it was a very ethnically diverse area, especially in Bosnia, where it had Croat people who were Catholic, it also had Serbian people who were Orthodox, and it had what became the Bosniak people who were uh, Muslim, and they all lived side by side, but they were classed differently within their social system. So fast forward through um, some more kind of Uh, developments in the 1870s. Bulgaria and Serbia gained full independence uh, and the Habsburg Empire took Bosnia to prevent Serbia from gaining a hold there basically. So that was the main reason that they wanted it so that the Serbians couldn't have it. And that was the back and forth that carried on for the turn of the 20th century. So they tried really hard to keep Bosnia neutral. They didn't really know what to do with it because they didn't want the Austrians to have power there or the Hungarians. And they didn't want the Serbians to have power there or the Croatians. So it was kind of like a no man's land. But that also meant that it didn't get invested in. So there was no real political reform there there was very little economic reform there it just became a really poor country where people were overtaxed and really unhappy and especially with the serbians being at kind of loggerheads with the austrian hungarian empire bosnian serbs were feeling particularly kind of hard done by because there were certain kind of positions that they weren't allowed they weren't allowed to become teachers or enter any governmental positions anything like that it was all kind of kept from them and so yeah there were these kind of divides that kept coming up between different ethnicities and religions because of the social standing that people had belonging to those And when the remaining Ottoman Empire collapsed because of the Young Turk Revolution in 1908, um, then that called for the Bosnians to have their own vote and their own constitution. And the Austro-Hungarians did not like the sound of that, and so they officially annexed the country to make it part of their own. But there was no real power given to the Bosnian people. They didn't have any power over their own government, and so there was just growing unrest. Which brings us to 1914 and the assassination. <laughs> the assassination. Iconic. Of, uh, yeah. Of a certain Austrian Hungarian heir to the throne, <laughs> Mr. Franz Ferdinand. <laughs> Great band, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. And that also brings us to the first museum that Nikki and I. Oh, yes. We went to so many museums. We did. Um, <laughs> So the the place where Franz Ferdinand was shot, it's on the Latin Bridge or Roman Bridge. And yeah, there is now the cafe where the assassin, Gavrilo Princip, he was in there having a coffee thinking, no, no, no assassinations today. And then over the bridge comes the man himself and his wife. So he runs out with his gun and pow, pow starts world war one <laughs> just that yeah just like that <laughs> yeah the museum which is mm-hmm. on that corner right mm-hmm. where he shot him yeah. yeah yeah so the museum is actually the converted building of the cafe that he was sat in uh-huh. so he ran out and he was like literally there on the pavement mm. and did the shooting wow. so. pretty authentic yeah yeah and i could not believe it had his actual weapons and clothes in it I I looked it up and apparently there are replicas. Oh. Yeah. Oh my god, it doesn't say that. It, doesn't. it says it's the actual gun. Are you serious? Yeah, apparently it's a replica and the real one's in Vienna. 
<laughs> That's not fair. Austrians should give that back. <laughs> give the real gun back to Bosnia. Yeah. Everything? Like even the clothes and stuff? I, maybe the clothes, are, but apparently the gun is definitely a replica. For those who don't really know the story, Franz Ferdinand was the heir to the throne of the Austria-Hungarian Empire. And he was visiting Sarajevo on this one sunny day with his wife, Sophie. And there was this group of young people who had kind of been radicalized in in politics and wanted to make a difference called the Black Hand. And they kind of clubbed together and came up with an assassination attempt. And there were like five of them all at different stages along the river set to try and assassinate him. Mm. Yeah, basically the first like two chickened out. The third one threw a bomb that did go off, but it hit the wrong car. <laughs> um, so it didn't kill Franz Ferdinand. And then when, you know, that had kind of scared everyone and everyone had gone their separate ways. And then Franz being the stand-up guy that he was apparently, he decided to go and visit the people in hospital who had been blown up in the first attack. And so on his way to the hospital was... When Gavrilo saw his opening and he was like, I was meant to shoot him earlier. And (laughs) there he is. And so, yeah, he ran out and and shot him again. And his wife, who was, I think, pregnant at the time. Yeah. Sad. Mm. Apparently, the Serbian government didn't really want a war at that time because they were, yeah, they tried to stop the assassination from taking place Mm. and warned like certain officials. And then, yeah, they just weren't very well protected. The royal party and the... yeah because like sorry driving in a convertible yeah along the open road you've like already kind of... been mm-hmm. attempted mm-hmm. to be like assassination and you just keep going yeah you just go back out you just the keep same going day, like oh, with yeah. a no roof car yeah <laughs> just like, yeah yeah could be yeah <laughs> <laughs> so um but the, yeah that that museum in particular it's called the museum of sarajevo 1878 to 1818 and it's basically like a one big room but it covers different themes such as resistance to the occupation cultural life and kind of one thing that i thought was quite interesting there was how you see the traditional ottoman way of life was completely changed by austrianization yeah like the architecture people's homes like the furniture like they went from that very kind of sitting on the floor with carpets and mm-hmm. and that kind of thing to being very kind of European yeah. furniture and I think that's one of the main issues which we're gonna see probably later in the context of Yugoslavia and the breakup of the country was that already here you see this division between Slovenians, Croats and Bosnians which were part of the Habsburg Empire and then you have the Serbian and the people from Montenegro which at that moment had their own kingdom mm-hmm. or that were part of the Ottoman Empire mm-hmm. so you you already see here like a duality of identities mm. yeah and it's, which could probably cause some problems at some point you know later on mm. yeah but it's just like yeah imagining a bosnian family for example going from living to the first type of ottoman lifestyle mm. to then you know new empire comes in to take over us mm-hmm. to this dainty european kind of lifestyle like mm-hmm. it's super interesting yeah. yeah but to still not really have a say in your own politics or oh, no and like your taxes mm. or no. anything like that and the perks that the muslim people had had in the previous kind of mm. millet system they lost all of that to the austrians like when they annexed the country and the, you know with the rising communism and other revolutions across europe 
it was something was going to happen. Yeah. yeah. It just happened that it was an entire world war. After that, we have a bit of a lull, but also the start of Yugoslavia, right? Because that's where the kingdom of Yugoslavia is formed. Yep. Yeah. Kingdom of Croats, Slovenes, and uh, Serbians after World War One. So the idea was already there because it means the, the kingdom of the southern Slavs. Is that right? Yugoslavia? Well, there has always been this idea even during the Ottoman Empire that all Slav people unite mm. together in a country that like this pan-Slavic idea and basically the kingdom of Serbs, Croats and Slovenes was formed and it was under the rule of the Serbian king Alexander I and here comes a problem that which will occur several decades later. We have Serb centralism mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and we also have the desire of other nations for autonomy. Mm-hmm. which this will repeat several decades later. And by the way, the Yugoslav king, Alexander I, who was, as I said, Serbian by ethnicity, was killed by a Bulgarian ah. <laughs> in, <laughs> in France. And this Bulgarian was training the Ustashi, which were extreme right-wing Croat group. Anyway, let's pass several decades. We have World War II. Long story short, the Nazis occupy this region. Bosnia was basically part of the former state of Croatia and Croatia then was ruled by the Ostashis, which are extreme right-wing group and they were arresting, killing and deporting Jews, uh, gypsies and Serbs. Like the Serbs suffered a lot during that time. Okay. This is another issue we should remember it will come back several decades later and it has never been forgotten by the Serbs also. Yeah. And by the way, an interesting um, note is that we see here that the Nazis supported an independent Croatian state during that time. Several decades later, when Croatia gains independence from Yugoslavia, one of the big supporters of that was Germany. Okay. And subsequently EU, because we know Germany has a lot of influence on the EU. Yeah. Mm. So, because a reason for that was not because of some, I don't know, connection that they had in the 40s, but it was because obviously they wanted to have a stronger influence in the Balkans. And by forming a, having a new state in the Balkans, you already have a new influence. But yeah. the thing is that if you think about it, here is this connection between, again, Germany and Croatia and how the Serbs suffered. So, there are some interesting notions here. Anyway, so. Was, was there a particular reason why the Serbs were targeted? Like, considering they're all one Slavic people, as we've kind of said. Well, but as you said, here we have the main difference between Orthodox and mm. Catholic. Also, uh, we speak about the peak of nationalism and we speak about extreme right-wing people here. So anyway, long story short, during World War II, the group of people who are fighting against the Nazis were the so-called partisans, which were a union of anti-fascists, communists and other groups that were hiding in the mountains and basically rebelling against the Nazi establishment. And the leader of that group was Josip Brostito, who was part Croat, part Slovene, and who formed a liberation council by representatives from every region in, in the Balkans, in Yugoslavia, which would be formed after that. He wanted to create a United State that, were, that will place all people on equal basis. And long story short, World War II finishes, the king of Serbia abdicates, and Tito becomes the first president of Yugoslavia. The state slogan is brotherhood and unity, and from then on, national identities are not important anymore. Because that's the only way how such a pluralistic country could survive, if you think about it. Yeah. But mm. people kept their, kind of, they kept their different ethnicities, and they, they still practiced their own faiths yes. and things within, but they were all part of one country. Yes, yes. And yeah. it was, we didn't have an opportunity for nationalism 
in that sense. If you have nationalism or some kind of patriotism, it's about Yugoslavia. It's about mm-hmm. brotherhood and unity again yeah. of all those people. Mm-hmm. It's not about that you are Serb or Croat or Slovene. It's about a common good, right? Sounds super nice, is, doesn't yeah, it? Totally. Yeah. Anyway, also Yugoslavia is a communist country, but it's also a relatively liberal one. And the reason for that was that Tito distanced himself from Stalin and started making his own socialist system. For example, people could travel to work abroad and come back and spend their money in Yugoslavia. Also, Yugoslavia effectively started, I don't know if you know, the so-called non-aligned movement, which was a union of 120 countries who neither aligned themselves to the Western capitalist system nor to the USSR communist sphere of influence. Okay. And most of the members, except for Yugoslavia, were from the global south. So Africa, Asia, Latin mm-hmm. America. So they were like pretty much the only Europeans? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, for example, if you go to the Museum of Yugoslavia in Belgrade, you would see fascinating presents that Tito had received from all around the world. And geopolitically, this, makes you, this made Yugoslavia very strong. And to be honest, I'm also in fact kind of jealous because scholars often ignore the diplomatic relations which other Eastern European countries had, like Bulgaria and Romania, which have been also developing very strongly during that time. But it's also quite understandable because Tito and Yugoslavia as leaders of the non-aligned movement, which aligned countries which had recently gained independence in Africa and in Asia, makes this union quite sexy, you know? <laughs> like like hot shit yeah i mean it's yeah it's lovely you know you have Mm -hmm. this european country that's not aligned to the ussr or to the Mm -hmm. western capitalist system leading these recently independent countries in africa and asia to drama free life Mm -hmm. yeah yeah yeah. Fidel Castro, Cuba was also part of that organization Fidel Castro said that the organization aims to ensure quote the national independence, sovereignty, territorial integrity and security of non-aligned countries in their struggle against imperialism, colonialism, neocolonialism, racism and all forms of foreign aggression, occupation, domination, interference or hegemony as well as against great power and block politics. Quite nice mission statement. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. 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 So yeah, as we can see, geopolitically Yugoslavia was quite strong, but also economically it was a very prosperous country. And it was the most progressive one from the communist world. For example, Yugoslavia was accessible to British holidaymakers. And during the sixties and seventies, many British working class people got their first days of foreign holidays in, mm-hmm. in Yugoslavia. Mm-hmm. As I said earlier, Yugoslavs were able to work abroad and spend their earlier money abroad back home. There was also this famous self-management economic system, which aimed to go beyond the conservative social democracy of the West and the bureaucratized state socialism of the East. So, okay, just a short, uh, I'm opening brackets to explain the self-management system. The main principle was that employees had to have key role in decision-making structures of their enterprises. Employees had the authority to choose who were their managers at that time so they give you a list of people who you decide as employee who you want to be your manager they could fix internal pay structures they could determine recruitment procedures to allocate the enterprise surplus between wages and investment so the self-management appears to have given workers and managers a real degree of effective autonomy if you think about it and decision making power absent in other socialist economies yeah because usually the state decided all the enterprise in other communist economies were owned by the state mm-hmm. employees didn't have a, didn't have anything to say in that in that case uh, so yeah in comparison to the capitalist world so the decisions for example were done by the owner of the company or in the communist world they were made by the state but in the case of yugoslavia decisions related to welfare employment and pay were made by the workers of the enterprise wow. yeah so 
very interesting and yeah. yeah anyway although it sounds very romantic and fair this system didn't work function properly it worked fine until the end of the 70s but already from the mid 60s problems were starting to build up yugoslavia tried to adopt also some market policies which clashed with their socialist system and together with the increased debt that the country was having meant that in the 80s yugoslavia was going to face some economic hardships uh, which also to be fair puts some questions on how viable was this self-management system because it was one of the reasons that caused these economic hardships later on. But in, during the 50s and 60s and beginning of 70s were quite well. And we shouldn't also forget our favorite cultural aspect. I guess you know that the rest of the communist world saw pop and rock as capitalist plots to undermine the moral of the communist youth. While Eastern European rock bands, for example, were mostly dissident affairs. While Yugoslavia was the first communist country to embrace pop and had the communist world's first pop music label, Yugotown. Yeah, Yugoton, yeah. <laughs> also, punk and new wave hit Yugoslavia quite big. Yeah. And Yugoslav punk bands were allowed uh, a freedom to travel and make concerts uh, in Eastern Europe. The fundamentals of the career of the so-called grandmother of performance art, Marina Abramovic, were formed during that time and in that Yugoslav society. And yeah, I also have another funny story I remember now. My grandparents, basically, they went to Yugoslavia in the 70s. And just for the context, my grandparents were having a good middle-class life in communist Bulgaria. And they went to Macedonia, which was one of the poorest Yugoslav republics. And anyway, my grandma always used to say that what she saw in Skopje was way more advanced compared to cities in Bulgaria. Really? For example, stores were full with products. And she, for example, bought her favorite china set from there. (laughs) And still when we have special family gatherings, guests or one of her grandchildren brings a girlfriend or a boyfriend, she always brings out the china teacups (laughs) to drink coffee or tea. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Anyway, going back to Yugoslavia, there was a big economic fiasco in the 80s. People could put only up to 40 liters per car per, per month. Uh, there was a limitation of car usage to every other day uh, based on the last digit of the license plate. Also, in 1980, Tito died in Ljubljana. And basically, he left a country of great complexity, which kind of existed because of him. Each country after his death had its own president and the six presidents formed a collective presidency. And just a short background, Slovenia was 90% consistent of Slovenes, so it was very homogenous and developed. However, Serbia was 60% Serbs, 20% Albanians, and it had two autonomous provinces. Macedonia was around 67% Macedonian and 20% Albanian. Bosnia was 33% Serbs, 40% Muslims and 20% Croats. And Albanians in Kosovo wanted to be proclaimed as a republic. Mm-hmm. So you have all these huge mixture of ethnicities. Their unifying figure is gone. And you have an economic hardships in the country. And all this is boiling for some years. And it's, mm-hmm. yeah. And then the rise of nationalism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Literally. So, yeah, the the cookie starts to crumble and the breakup of Yugoslavia was by far the smoothest transition of states to their independence. Essentially, shit starts to hit the fan. Yugoslavia was a mix of ethnic groups and religions with Orthodox Christianity, Catholicism and Islam being the main religion, bringing the p- collapse of communism in general and the parallel ignition or reignition of nationalism during the late 1980s and early 1990s, and Yugoslavia falls into political and economical chaos. What really turned things sour was the disagreement of different political leaders of the Yugoslavian countries. They were countries who wanted their outright in independence as republic and others mainly serbia who urged greater political powers so 
yeah, it didn't take long for things to really go down south. And soon after, the call for independence started to be put into action. So put lightly, Slovenia and Croatia blamed Serbia of unjustly dominating Yugoslavia's government, military and finances, while Serbia accused these two republics of separatism. Yeah, because basically like Slobodan Milosevic, the Serbian leader, he saw himself as like trying to keep Yugoslavia together. But at the same time, he was Serbian. Like he was very pro-Serbian. Yeah, like... Yeah, he was stopping into nationalism. That was the main issue, yeah. Yeah, yeah which actually began in Kosovo. Um, so yeah, this dude, Milosevic, who at the time was actually a Serb Communist Party leader and the right-hand man of the current president of Serbia, Ivan Stambolis. I'm sorry, going to butcher Ivan. <laughs> Ivan, sorry. <laughs> and this, the president already had a direct concern about Milosevic's rhetoric. So Tito for so long had the policy of brotherhood and unity, which was meant and did crush any form of nationalism from the Yugoslavian republics. And even so, seven years after Tito's death, this was relatively in place. But yeah, then we go to Kosovo, which at the time was Serbia's poorest province, and Ivan was meant to go to sort out some kind of local scuffles between the locals who were a majority Albanian, Muslim Albanians, and a small population of Serbs. So yeah, local communists who were mainly ethnic Albanians faced a challenge from a group of nationalist Serbs. And basically the nationalist Serbs have felt ignored for all this time in Yugoslavia and possibly from intergenerational uh, grievances of feeling disregarded in Kosovo. They were really boiling up and unhappy with their current state in Kosovo. So Milosevic is meant to just go, have a look what's going on, try and settle some grievances. But what he actually does, he ends up agreeing to talk to the nationalist Serbs, which was actually a direct violation of the guiding principles of Tito's Yugoslavia. And then what just fueled this even more, Milosevic taps into this historical nationalism. He goes into the King Lazar myth, if I can call it that, you know, with this king leading the Serb army into battle to halt the advance of Islam, but not succeeding in doing so, and therefore the Ottoman Empire taking over. And, you know, six centuries later, Serbian television, which was instrumental actually in this whole thing, is still recreating this heroic defeat. So basically, Kosovo is 90% Muslim Albanians, and the rest of the people are Serbians, who claim they are being driven out of their ancient kingdom. Stories of Albanian atrocities, no matter how true they were, were readily believed in Serbia. And Milosevic now has the opportunity or had the opportunity to exploit this and went into the whole Serb has been deprived of its rights, what's been done to us is wrong, creating a very obvious divide within Kosovo. And he goes back to Kosovo and agrees to meet with these nationalists, which was as I mentioned before, a violation of Tito's Yugoslavia. And he brings with him the Albanian leader, Azam Vlasi, who pretty much had no idea what he was walking into. They have a meeting and Serb after Serb get up on the stand and claim that Albanians are making their life impossible. There are claims of murdering Serbs, defiling graves, just a whole range of horrific stuff. Meanwhile, Azim Vlasi is whispering into Milosevic's ears that these are all false, so fake news. We don't really know what's true and what's not but essentially these two sides are saying two different things there's 
shuffle outside of this meeting between the nationalists and Kosovan police, which who are Albanians, and Milosevic directly addresses the crowd, who are Serb nationalists, who claim that they are being beaten by these Albanian policemen. And Milosevic says, you will not be beaten again. Serb media takes this, portrays Milosevic as saving the Serb cause in Kosovo. And the media didn't show how the Serbs had provoked the police because the Serbs actually threw stones and were being very antagonizing towards the police. And essentially that's how the Milosevic myth is formed. Then he goes back to talk to the poor president and is accused of breaching party policy, which he did. There's distance between these two guys. And at a few days later, at a meeting of top communist leaders, Ivan is politically assassinated, basically for not agreeing to the Serbian nationalism. Milosevic calls for a vote. President is out and Milosevic in. So Milosevic literally politically takes over and takes control. And then all Serbs everywhere basically see this as a battle cry. It's just throwing fire into the flame of Serbian nationalism. It's this idea of reclaiming Serbian former glory. And it just keeps going on stronger from here. And fighting against that oppression, isn't it? Like, I think that was a big kind of driving force. Was, oh, we were oppressed by the Ottomans and the yeah. Muslims. Oh, we were oppressed by the Cro- Croats like in the second world war and so they've been oppressed again and again and this was their rise to and this happens also like as you as you've mentioned happens in the most important heritage yeah. site for serbia you know where they have you have this great battle then you have all the most important serbian monasteries are in kosovo mm. basically yeah which is a land with the 90 percent population of albanians yeah. and that they want now to be proclaimed as a republic mm-hmm and yeah, still to this day, there's yeah. a lot of controversy yeah. around Yeah, so it's work. it's it's a complicated topic if you think about it, and it and just and yeah, Milosevic tapped into this nationalism yeah. and a very purposeful spot, I think. I was watching this speech of Slavoj Žižek, you know, this Slovene uh, mm-hmm. philosopher, and he was saying that the Yugoslav elite during the 80s saw that democracy was coming. Basically, they were seeing the signs that in 10 years or as it happened in all communist countries, democracy was going to come and they had to change. So how could they achieve such democratic legitimacy because they would need it in 10 years was through tapping into nationalism. And they were searching for ways to gain some democratic legitimacy, but without cancelling themselves as a communist elite. So that's a way by... Tapping into nationalism and protecting, as Milosevic is protecting the rights of Serbs. Mm. He knew that the democracy probably is going to come in two or three years and there are going to be some elections. People are obviously going to vote for the person that is going to protect your rights, you know, mm-hmm. in yeah. a new independent state. So, That's really yeah. Interesting. yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, that <laughs> very much did happen because the countries of Yugoslavia did start to become independent slowly one after the other. In 1991, Slovenia declared its independence. This was relatively smooth-ish. It triggered a bit of an intervention from the Yugoslavian People's Army, JNA, which just turned into a brief military conflict that eventually ended with the victory of the Slovenian forces and the JNA just withdrawing its soldiers and equipment. And this just caused massive confusion to the Slovenian people and soldiers even because, like, they had just been one. They were just fighting in one army for the the entire period of Yugoslavia. And suddenly, like, it's like, no, you're split and you're fighting these guys now. So Slovenian soldiers were just like, 
what are we doing? What yeah. is going on? We're not with them now. We're meant to be shooting them. Like we were literally shooting with them. Now we're enemies. Like it was just a mess. But they got there eventually. And as you said, like the Slovenians were quite um, homogenous, weren't they? Like ethnically. Yeah, so. ethnically. They were not of interest. They yeah. weren't. They weren't. Yeah. There was no reason to keep them. Yeah. They were already very well associated with the West because they have borders with Austria and Italy. Like it was the most developed republic. Um, I think they were actually critiquing, politically questioning Milosevic's moves through a magazine. I can't Yeah, remember. yeah, yeah. But that was you, nowhere else in Yugoslavia um, was that happening. Yeah. Ag- again, going back to Zizek, I'm not sure, but he, he was explaining this story that in the 80s in Slovenia, there was a LGBT group being formed for protecting gay rights. Oh, wow. Okay. And, and the communist um establishment was like oh great you are so progressive you should do that it's amazing you know yeah. which uh, was like he was giving it as a sign that yeah communist yugoslavia was a very liberal state in mm. certain aspects it was obviously a communist it was mm. a terrible regime people were prosecuted who had different ideas we all know that but they also had this progressive left-wing view you know in the end for certain aspects well croatia actually declared its independence on the same day as slovenia but there there was a sizable ethnic serb minority who actually openly rejected the authority of the newly proclaimed croatian state so of course they were also backed up by the jna who were largely being run by the serbs croatian serbs as well rebelled and basically declared nearly a third of croatia's territory under their control to be an independent serb state and Croats and other non-Serbs were expelled, and this conflict in Croatia effectively lasted until 1995. Macedonia, known at the time, now known as North Macedonia, declared independence in 1991 and enjoyed a contrastingly peaceful separation. By the way, the first country that recognized Macedonia as an independent state is Bulgaria. <laughs> <laughs> And now we are the country that stops them in entering the EU <laughs> because of historical issues and <laughs> heritage. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, yeah, they left very peacefully with no shits given, pretty much. I don't know, like, um, Macedonia seemed like a pretty cool place at the time because, like, when you watch, like, docos of, like, all the leaders getting together and they're, like, uptight 80s, 90s suits, like, the Macedonian leader is, like op shop vintage sweater <laughs> very very cool looking very cool <laughs> he was a hipster he was a hipster yeah he's <laughs> yeah, like i don't want no trouble man like he literally. spoke really good english yeah, compared to the he's rest like the only one in docos who like speaks english so there's so much fascinating history for bosnia that we're gonna have to extend this over two episodes so i think we're gonna cap part one there and come back to you next week with our second part of the episode yes and remember if you want to chat to us in the meantime you can find us at at museums mojito on instagram and twitter and at the podcast's full name on facebook and also on your favorite podcast listening channels thanks very much guys see you soon bye